kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. You can have a seat. Thanks so much. As you find your seat, I want to thank you for being here today, and I want to join. Uh, I want to join uh, Chris in just welcoming all of you here. If you're watching online, we're thankful that you're he- here as well. We know we have some people that are tuning in that way. I want to thank everybody that participated in our time this morning, and I want to mention uh, really quickly. Uh, this this might get mentioned at the end, but just in case, if you've forgotten, didn't get the email, didn't see the announcement, we're having a lunch after church. I know there's probably some people not in the room right now that are down in the gym still preparing for that, but uh, the proceeds from that lunch are going to go to help offset the cost for our Mexico mission trip that's happening this summer, and so we'd encourage you to stay and join us for lunch. You're going to eat somewhere, I guess, I'm guessing, unless you're fasting today, and so uh, make, that, make plans to, d- to do that here so that you can uh, help us uh, prepare for that mission trip. Also, I'm really excited and appreciative of Diana coordinating I know some of you families are appreciative of Diana coordinating uh, our nursery children's worship class for our youngest kids, so be sure to thank a children's ministry volunteer today uh, if you have benefited from that at all, so grateful that that's happening. So today we're beginning a new series that uh, I'm calling Like Jesus, and over the next uh, five weeks in this series, where our focus is going to be on the cross, which you may have heard or picked up on in the songs that we sang this morning. And focusing on the cross is especially important during these weeks that we're in right now because we're in that part of the year that is sometimes referred to or known as the, the season of Lent. And, and that word might feel unfamiliar, might feel uh, new or foreign to some of you, but it's simply a time of the year when Christians around the world, focus on the cross, and we focus on preparing ourselves for the season of Easter, and really the biggest Christian holiday of the year uh, is is Easter Sunday when we remember and celebrate the resurrection. And so this church, uh, if you're new to this church family, has celebrated and recognized some, some of the days that are on what is known as the church calendar, things like Advent and Christmas and Good Friday and things like that. Lent is just a part of that same kind of a time. And so over the next five weeks, really to help us prepare for Easter Sunday on April the 9th, we're going to focus on the cross in our time in God's Word and focus on specifically what the cross invites us to do, and that is to be like Jesus. Uh, And so a guiding question that I want to kind of start with, it's going to kind of help frame our entire series as we think about this, is this question, why did Jesus die? Why did Jesus die? What what does Jesus' death mean for my life? What does it have to do with my life? Uh, And this is what I want us to consider during this series. And and maybe you've never considered it. Maybe you've never considered the question, why did Jesus die? You know that it happened. You've accepted and believed that it happened. And that's pretty much it, right? You've kind of moved on. You know that we acknowledge it and remember it, remember it and commemorate it each week as we take the Lord's Supper. But you've not given it a whole lot of thought beyond that. And if that's you, that is 100% okay. Um, but I wanna, I hope, my hope with this series is that, that we all will begin to think a little more about 
why Jesus died and not just that he did die. Uh, because the Bible, you might be surprised to learn over the next several weeks, has lots of things to say about why Jesus died. And I, wanna, I want us to ask and consider why did Jesus die and why did the cross happen and what does all of that mean? And there are a lot of ideas that people have about this question. Uh, there are a lot of theories out there, sometimes referred to as uh, theories of atonement, if, if you're familiar with a phrase like that. Uh, which is just to say reasons or th- speculations or thoughts about why it is that Jesus died. And so, of course, a common answer to this question that might have been the answer that came to your mind whenever you saw the question was, well, Jesus died to save me from my sins, which is true. And I'm not going to try to ex- explain that away or say that that's not true. It's 100% true. But what if, what if the Bible had more to say about the cross than that? That's what I want you to consider in this next few weeks together. Could we hear that message if the Bible had more to say about the cross than just that Jesus came to die for your sins? And I think that the answer is yes, because I know you, and I know that your heart is that we want to know what Scripture says. And so my hope is that we'll be able to get a sense of that as we work through the next several weeks. So since uh, the, the crucifixion, since the cross happened, people have been wrestling with this question. And one of the things that's happened over the years in all the attempts to understand the cross and explain the cross is that people have, with good intentions, come up with these sort of short explanations uh, where the cross gets boiled down to maybe a single verse or maybe a couple of verses. Uh, Oftentimes, these These sort of brief, short explanations are used to try to explain the cross to someone who is making a decision in their own life about whether or not they want to follow Jesus. And so people try to boil down the cross into just a couple of short, easy-to-explain ideas or thoughts. Verses that come up often whenever this happens are verses like Romans 3.23. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Another one in Romans Uh, Romans 6.23, for the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Another one that comes up is is maybe John 3.16, which we just heard Todd and Haley read for us. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. Verses like these, while incredibly powerful and good and necessary, have been used over the years to try to sort of shrink down, to boil down the cross into this easily explainable form. Uh, here, here's an example of what I'm talking about that's been created in like a visual form. Maybe you've seen something like this before in an attempt that's got created in an attempt to try to explain the cross. My sort of very short, rough summary of this kind of image that is all over the place is that there was a problem that you couldn't fix. It created this massive chasm between you and God, and someone had to be punished for it. Something had to be done. And Jesus was, to use the Hunger Games language, the tribute for all of us, right? He, he offered himself as a willing tribute for us, closes the gap between us, us and God, and now because of that, that life is possible, a common way, if, you're, if you have a lot of history in churches of Christ, you grew up in a church of Christ, 
a common way that it's been uh, explained in our tribe and churches of Christ was with the words, hear, believe, repent, confess, and be baptized, which, if you know the history of that, started a long time ago as one person's, he actually had six points, but he realized a six-pointed sermon wasn't as clever as a five-pointed sermon, and this was way before the days of images and screens and PowerPoint and all the things. So he boiled down his six points to five points so that it would be easily remembered. And it worked because lots of people remembered those five words, right? We've, but the, the challenge with that is that we, it, fo- it led people to focus on the response to the cross while not spending as much time focusing on the cross itself and what it meant. And on this question, why did Jesus die? And so literally every version you could think of that exists out there in the world, they used to be on tracks, you know, that would hang in church foyers and, and of every, every tribe would have these, their own version, you know, Baptist churches and churches of Christ. Everybody had their own version of their kind of religious tracks that they would keep in their foyer for people to take and hand to their neighbors or whatever. And a lot of them had boiled down kind of the cross to a very easily explained idea. And every version of those began as a way to try to summarize the cross and what it means. And while I, I want you to hear me say I'm, I'm, I'm using that as an example, but I am in no way questioning anybody's heart or their intentions in, in communicating the cross in those ways. I do think, though, that somewhere along the way, the challenge uh, became that the cross turned into almost a formula. It turned into a transaction. Uh, God did this. I do this, or I follow these simple steps of salvation. Like we even have songs. There's an old song uh, that even uses the word transaction. Can some of you remember what it was? And the transaction so quickly was made when at the cross I believed, right? This very much exchange. This happened, this happened. Now I have received the benefit of the cross. And so as we consider. Uh, this idea, this question of what does the cross mean and why did Jesus die, I want to suggest this morning, uh, and then really over the course of the series, that the cross is not a formula. Uh, it's not something that is easily boiled down to a single verse. Right? The cross is a story. The cross is bigger than just a simple, easily explained thing that can be checked off with a couple of verses. The cross is a story, and the verses, of course, all help explain the larger story. But as we consider this idea that the cross is not a formula, that it's a story, I want to use as an example an illustration to illustrate that and to highlight that. I want to actually use the Bible itself, and I want to use the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Now, If you were to read through Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, uh, what you would find, if you were just to read them cover to cover in one or two sittings, what you would find is that each of them, and you, you know, many of you know these books, and you can think about this as you're thinking about the way that they were written. All of them were written with a specific audience in mind. They were written with a, a different focus, right? They, they all have different ways of approaching the story. They're all telling the story of Jesus but they're all telling it in a very different way. They all have a different audience. They focus on different things. But do you know, might you guess, at which point in their telling of the story they all come together in agreement? It's the cross. Each of them, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, give great attention to the suffering and to the death 
of Jesus Christ. Now, I, wanna, I want to highlight that by sharing this quote with you. The scholar Fleming Rutledge said it this way, and this is a really powerful idea. She said, The portions of the Gospels describing the arrest, trial, suffering, and execution of Jesus are quite unlike the rest of the Gospels, which is what I just said, right? Like, all of them write their story a certain way, but when you get to the, those, those things, the, the arrest, trial, suffering, and execution of Jesus... All of that is different than whatever they wrote before it. These sequences, these arrest, trial, suffering, and execution of Jesus, are, are staged like long, dramatic narratives, differing noticeably from the earlier material. The passion stories, the suffering and death of Jesus is what that means, the passion stories take up one-fourth to one-third of the total length of the four Gospels. Now, here's why that's significant. You can leave that up there just a second. I want you to think about what Rutledge is saying in this quote. Here's what we know. We know that Jesus was around mid-30s when he died. A lot of people speculate 33. Some people are now saying maybe he was 34. Who who knows, right? But I'm just saying mid-30s. When you get to that age, you're around mid-30s. You want to try to claim early 30s, but you're really mid-30s. So he was around mid-30s when he died. And in his, so that's the first thing we know. In his public, second thing we know is his public ministry after his baptism, that's what I'm calling his public ministry, when he, he became, you know, what we know of him as Jesus, was about three years long. Okay, that's the second. We know he was around, he was mid-30s when he died. We know that his public ministry was about around three years or so. The third thing we know is that his death and the events around his death took about a week of his entire time on earth. One week, seven days of his entire time on earth. Now, that's what we know. So the question that I want you to consider as we think about this idea, which, you know, if you're questioning that, you could, I guess, track that on your own. I think she's telling the truth, and so I'm going to assume that. But I want you to consider, assuming that this is true, this. If the people, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, who wrote the story of Jesus that we read today, felt like that the cross was an important enough part of the story that one week of his entire life needs to take up 25 to 33% of the entire retelling of the story, then it must be important, right? And I would suggest that there must, if this is true, which we're going to assume it is, then there must be more going on than a simple, easily explained transaction, while that might be true that there was some sort of an exchange that happened, the cross has more to say to us than sometimes we want to hear might be another way to think about it. The cross changed the world. For Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the cross is the pinnacle, the climax of the story. It's like everything that they wrote prior to the events of the cross is leading toward, building toward the events that happen around the cross. It's like everything they wrote prior to the cross, is building toward what they really want to tell you about what happened on the cross at Golgotha. There is mystery that happens at the cross. There is scandal, right, at its very basic objective level. An innocent man was murdered on a cross. The story has everything that a person might need. And so that is essentially what I want to talk about for the next several weeks. It's a really long introduction, but I needed to say all of that in order to talk about what I want to talk about this morning. And if you're still not sure what I'm talking about or why it matters, then I hope we can make it clear as we go through this series. So today, to look at the cross, I want to begin at the beginning. 
in Genesis chapter 1. If you want to look in your Bibles, uh, I'm going to be reading in Genesis chapter 1, beginning in verse 26 and 27. It'll also be up here on the screens. But this is what it says in the beginning of the story, Genesis chapter 1, 26 and 27. Then God said, Let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish of the sea and the birds and the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals, and over the, all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. All right, we're going to stop there. 26 verses into the story that we submit our lives to, the story of God. We learn that God made humans as creatures that bear his image. And we could just sit with that reality for the rest of the day, and it would be enough to kind of make, it should be enough to make, kind of make us pause. What we learn in those verses we just read is that there is this special, there's this unique co connection between humans and God. There's a status, it says, that we were created with that somehow reflects God or somehow is a representative of God in a way that stands apart from everything else that God created. Animals and fish and birds and stars and angels. No other part of creation, no other part of creation is described the way that humans are described. So we are image bearers. We're image bearers. This is, a, this is, what, this is what God has said about us. Let us make men and women, in our image, in our likeness, so that when you look at the faces of people around you, you are looking at the face of God because this is what God looks like. He looks like all the people in the world. If you put all the faces in the world together, that's what God would look like because people are made in the image of God. We carry God's image. We bear God's image. But that's not all that it says. It says we are also, it goes on to say that we are also co-laborers with God because right after this, God gives Adam and Eve a job. God gives humans a job. Adam and Eve are given tasks, and they're given authority in the world. They're, they're given the job of tending the garden, of naming the animals. They're, another way to say it, they're invited to partner with God. They're invited to work with God. And no other part of creation, dogs are not invited to partner with God in the way that humans are. Elephants are not asked to do the things that we're asked to do. Stars are not asked to do the things that we're asked to do. No other part of creation receives the invitation that you and I have received. So before anything else happens, before I say anything else, before anything else happens in the story, what I want you to know and hear is that humans were created in the image of God Almighty and they were pronounced good. God looked at all of his creation and said, it is very good and that is who you are. And that may be the message that some of us need to hear this morning. But of course what happens is that very quickly in the story, things take a turn, don't they? All right? The image of God is fractured as a result of Adam and Eve's disobedience. And the result is that humans become uh, enslaved to their urges and their disobedience and their desires. Doing what they want to do instead of following God and doing what God has asked of them, instead of living into their, their image-bearing reality, they decide to live into their own reality. 
doing whatever they want to do. And really, this is the story. If you read the next chapters of the book of Genesis, Genesis 3 through 11, that's really the story of the next several chapters. Cain kills Abel, and humans begin to do whatever they want to do. Listen to how Genesis chapter 6, verse 5, describes the world at that time. It's going to sound a little familiar to the world we live in today. The Lord saw how great the wickedness of the human race had become on the earth, and that every inclination of the thoughts of the human heart was only evil all the time. Humanity, is the way I would summarize this verse, is that humanity rejects the job as God's representatives in the world. And instead of living as creatures that have a divine image, that bear God's image, they reflect their own. And reflecting that, they choose to reflect their own glory, doing whatever they want to do. And so after humans reject their job to represent God, to image God, to, to reflect God in the world, then God calls Abraham. And then ultimately God calls Israel as a result of calling Abraham to be a community that will represent God in the world. And Israel struggles with this, right? If you read the Old Testament prophets, this is, this is a really short summary of the Old Testament, but this is what the Old Testament prophets are always doing. They're often doing two things. They're reminding people, number one, about how they have failed to live into their identity as divine image bearers in the world. That's one of the primary things that Old Testament prophets are always telling Israel. Hey, guys, remember who you are. Remember where you came from. You're failing to live into the identity as divine image bearers of God. That's a primary thing that they do. The second primary thing that they do is that they're always talking about this coming Messiah, this Savior, this Son of Man, Daniel's language, uh, that is going to come at some point in the future. And this is the point at which the cross begins to become a really important part of the story because what we learn is that what we needed was a truly human human being. Not only who would die for us so that we don't have to, not only who would be a good example, but we needed one that would accomplish, be able to accomplish what Adam and Eve failed to accomplish. So if you're taking notes or you're thinking about this, one of the answers to the question, why did Jesus die? He died to fulfill the task that Adam and Eve failed to accomplish. And Paul actually writes about this in Romans chapter 5. And I'm going to read from Romans chapter 5. It's going to be up here on the screens as well. But I want to just encourage you as we read this, there's a lot of work. Paul, he's my guy, man. He's a man after my own heart. But he uses a lot of words and a lot of sentences. There's a lot here that we're about to read together. So hang with me as we read what Paul writes in Romans chapter 5. I'm going to read, picking up in verse 12. I think we have it. Do we have it on the screen? No? Okay. It says, this is what he says. He says, therefore, this is what he, he's just talking about, this idea that Jesus has come to do the thing that Adam did not do. He says, therefore, just as sin entered the world through one man, Adam, and death through sin. And in this way, because of what happened in the garden, death came to all people because all sinned. Verse 14. Nevertheless, death reigned from the time of Adam to the time of Moses, even over those who did not sin by breaking a command, as did Adam, who is the pattern of the one to come. But the gift, Paul says, is not like the trespass. For if the many died by the trespass of the one man, Adam, how much more did God's grace and the gift that came by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, overflow to, to the many? 
Nor can the gift of God be compared with the result of one man's sin. The judgment followed one sin and brought condemnation. That was what happened in the garden. But the gift followed many trespasses and brought justification. That's what happened at the cross. For if by the trespass of one man, Adam, death reigned through, through that one man, how much more will those who receive God's abundant provision of grace and the gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ? Okay, it's a, it's a lot, but that's all really important. But really what I think he's wanting to say is right now. He says, consequently, just as one trespass resulted in condemnation for all people, so also one righteous act, the cross, resulted in justification and life for all people. For just as the, through the disobedience of the one man, Adam, many were made sinners, so also through the obedience of the one man, Jesus, the many will be made righteous. Now, what I, it's not even in my notes. What I want to say, though, is I think that sometimes we fully accept what we receive from Adam, but we do not fully accept what we receive from Jesus Christ. And you might want to go back and reflect on all of those words, but I want to just take an attempt at trying to explain all of this. Paul is saying, I think, that a key way of understanding what happens at the cross is to go all the way back to Adam to creation. He says that sin and death entered the world through Adam, and as a result, sin and death were transferred to everyone. And in the same way that Adam passed on sin and death to every human, Jesus' death on the cross passes on life and righteousness to every person. What he's saying, another way to say it is that Jesus is the second Adam. Jesus is the human that Adam was unable to be for us. Or to say it a different way, the story of Scripture, I think I have this quote, the story of Scripture begins with creation and culminates with new creation. What Jesus is doing on the cross is new creation. He's recreating the world. And what happens in this new creation is that Jesus restores your divine image. And while this might be hard for you to accept, you bear the image of God. On the days you don't feel like it, on the days you question it, on the days you're not sure, you bear the image of God. Another way to say that, to use the adjective, is you are godly. You have been formed and created in the image of God. We were created with a divine image, but along the way, what happens in life is that we forget this. Humans forget this, and that's a result of what happened at the beginning of the story in the Garden of Eden. Adam and Eve forgot that they were divinely created. Adam and Eve forgot that they bore God's image, and they decided to take and to take life into their own hands and to do what they wanted to do. Along the way, we've forgotten this too, and we've eaten from the tree. And we've eaten, and we've become knowledgeable about good and evil, and we have lived in our own way. And so God, hear, hear me say this, God recreates the world, and God does this at the cross. Jesus' death and resurrection bring about new life and new creation. His death and his resurrection are a part of the process of restoring what God intended for humanity all along from the beginning. 
And part of recreating the world is recreating and redeeming people. And I think this verse might be a verse you've not read before, but I think this is what Peter is getting at when he writes these words in 2 Peter chapter 1. He says, His divine power has given us everything we need for a godly life through our knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and goodness. Through these, he has given us his very great and precious promises so that through them you may participate in the divine nature, having escaped the corruption in the world caused by evil desires. Now you can leave that up there just a second. I want to try to explain what I think Peter is saying. Peter is saying that through the power of Jesus at work through the cross, you have what you need for a godly life. You have what you need to live into the divine image that you were created with, to bear that image that you were given at the beginning, that sin has sort of you know, gotten you off course from thinking about. And his words are really important. He is not saying, I mean, he says, think about it, you participate. You participate in the divine nature. Now, I'd be, I'd be, I think if we were honest and we just took a vote, how many of us feel like we participate in the divine nature? Very few, if any of us, would raise our hand and go, yep, I'm 100% sure. My, I'm, as I'm living my life, I'm participating in the divine nature. He's, that's what he says happens. His words are important, though. He's not, he's not saying that you and I are God, but he is saying that you have a divine nature, that you, are, you can be like God. He is saying that somehow, as we follow Jesus, that you can participate in the divine nature, that you can access it, that you can tap into it, that Jesus and a life with Jesus, maybe another way to say it, are not out of reach, that because of the cross, you can, over the course of your life, Grow more and more and more and more into the God-given image that you were created with. Which I think is remarkable and needs some more reflection. I need to reflect some more about that, but I think it actually informs what he says next in the next verses in 2 Peter chapter 1, beginning in verse 5. He says, for this reason. What reason? This reason that you are a participant with God through your, the divine nature that you were created with. For this reason, make every effort to add to your faith goodness, and to goodness, knowledge, and to knowledge, self-control, and to self-control, perseverance, and to perseverance, godliness, and to godliness, mutual affection, and to mutual affection, love. If you possess these qualities in increasing measure, they will keep you from being ineffective and unproductive in your knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Why do you need to be a good person? Right? This changes the way you think about being a good person. It's not because God's angry at you and ready to strike you down when you make a bad decision. It's because you've been created out of love with an image that is reflecting God. And that is different than all the other things that were created in the world. God cares about us uniquely in a different way than God cares about all the other things that he created. And so Peter says, let that change your life. Let the fact that God, has, through his divine power, has given you everything you need for a godly life, that you can participate in the divine nature that you were given from the beginning, let that reason 
through that reason, cause you to make every effort to live in this way, to adding to your faith love and godliness and mutual affection and all of these things, right? Like that it's not, a, it's not a, it's a, we can grow in Christ is what he's saying. We can grow more and more and more into the God-given image that we're created with, and we can do this, church, because of what happened at the cross. And Peter is saying, this is not just a theory, this is not just an idea. Like, we can take actual steps today, practical things that we can do to accomplish this. Adding these things to our lives, he says, will keep you from being made in the image of Adam. And instead, will increasingly make you more and more and more like Jesus. I'm going to say that again. Adding these things to our lives will keep you from being made more and more and more into the image of Adam, which is what I think Genesis 6, 5 that I read at the beginning of the sermon is describing. Adding these things to our lives will keep you from being made into the image of Adam and instead will increasingly make you more and more and more like Jesus. And what I want to say what I, about this idea, this way of seeing and thinking about the cross, what I love about this way of viewing the cross is this, and it's really important. Jesus chose to do this. Jesus was the second Adam because he, he knew what the first Adam did not do. God's desire was for people to live in garden, in community, and be in relationship with him in the way that things were created from the beginning, but that didn't happen. So Jesus knew the task, and he chose to do it anyway. He, he did, someone might point out, ask for the cup to pass from him in the garden before his death, but he ultimately went through with it. He went through with it, and, and as a result of going to the cross, this is what I want you to see, he did the thing that Adam was unable to do. And in the process, he restored the image of God to us, enabled you to reflect, to image God in the world. And he empowered you by his spirit to be able to partner with God in the ways that were imagined at the beginning of the story, way back in Genesis chapter 1. Jesus got all the way involved in our life so that we could be all the way involved in his. And this is the beginning of our journey toward the empty tomb. And so my encouragement for you today is to fix your eyes over these next several weeks on the cross. Let's learn together what it means. Let's resist Quick answers that might come to our mind about why Jesus died. Answers that you've maybe heard or you've known. And let's think more deeply about this significant event that took place that the gospel writers, when retelling the story, felt it was important enough to focus on that they dedicated a significant chunk of their larger story to making sure we knew that this one week in the history of the world was the most important week that ever took place. Would you stand with me this morning? <clears throat> I want to end this morning with just a blessing, a benediction, my prayer for us as we head into these next several weeks of this series. May the God of peace, who brought back our Lord Jesus Christ from the dead, equip you 
with every good thing to do his will, working in us that which pleases him through Jesus Christ our Lord. To him be glory forever and ever and ever. And the church said, amen. Let's sing together.